The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, this morning we are um, blessed to be able to continue on in our study of the book of Acts. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 15 through 26. And uh, what I'm going to do, just to kind of get into the context of what we did last week, I'm going to start reading back at verse 12, and then we'll go on through the end of the chapter. There's two major uh, sections of this passage today, and it's more of a story, so it won't be quite the same uh, as a typical letter that we might go verse by verse and really look in detail. But uh, there's some very important information in the text today, uh, and so kind of as a as an introduction, let me just tell you that these paragraphs, the two two main sections here that we'll look at today, the emphasis really is on the fulfillment of Scripture. And so that's that's kind of a broader subject that we can think about because God's Word, as we have seen and will see, God's Word is true. And that, that theme just keeps coming back over and over again God is faithful, not only in his actions but in, and in his character, but also in his word. And his word is something we can trust. And so this passage today, the larger passage, really emphasizes that fulfillment of what God says. It's a prominent theme, really, in Luke's gospel and in this book of Acts, which Luke was also used to write down. And so... One of the subjects that we'll talk about today that can be troubling a little bit is talking about Judas and what happened to him and why he did what he did and then the result of that because it's in this passage today that the remaining apostles had to replace Judas and put someone else in his position since he had done what he had done and then subsequently then died, took took his own life for, for all his... Uh, heartbreak and despair over what he had done in betraying the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to look at that a little bit closer today, thinking of it in that context of God's Word is going to be fulfilled. It's the fulfillment of Scripture. He's at work in the situation. Even though it appears things are going haywire, we need to remember this truth, that the risen Lord is not frustrated by human rebellion, and he will not allow even apostasy, or, or, or as Judas went his own way, that's not going to hinder the fulfillment of his salvation purposes. We need to understand how big our God is. Something that we do, something that Judas did, uh, we, we can't, we can't, uh, we're not powerful enough to circumvent God's plans. I hope, hope we realize that. God is almighty, and that word almighty is there for a reason. And so today we'll get to see uh, how that unfolds as we prepare. Next week, you know, we'll be in chapter 2, and we'll see Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down, and really things start really rolling then in the book of Acts. And so uh, this is that in-between time, so to speak, between the ascension of Christ and the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. So if you would follow along with me, I'm going to back up just a couple verses to verse 12 and start reading there so we can kind of get into the text that we're looking at today. Here's what God's Word says as He inspired Luke to write these words for us. 
Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons were there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in, his, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Father, in Jesus' name I pray today that you'll speak clearly to us from your word, that you would give us grace to understand what we've heard, and that you would give us strength to be obedient to the principles you give us, that we would live lives that will bring glory and honor to Jesus' name. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Now this is a very interesting text of Scripture today, because really we're looking at two different sections from verses, uh, let's see, verse 15 down to verse 20, and then verse 21 to verse 26. You see two things. You see the fate of Judas, and you see the choosing of Matthias. And so we start off, and this seems like this seems really um, almost somber. I don't know. It's just it seems like a a sad uh, commentary, really, on what happened. But what had to happen between the time? Remember what's coming. Jesus has just ascended. The disciples or apostles now have come back to Jerusalem, and they're waiting because Jesus told them to wait until they're. Uh, given power from on high by the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting, gathered in this room. And in the meantime, they know that because they were 12 chosen by Jesus himself, now they're 11 because of Judas, they have to replace him and bring that number back to what Jesus had originally called them to do. So that's what they're taking care of business, and they're thinking about what has happened. So you can imagine 
these 11 and the, and the others that were there, because the, the Bible tells us it was about 120 people, they're almost rehearsing the events that have taken place, and they're remembering what's happened. And so Peter stands up. Now, now here's the, the first thing that we can really, really zero in on in this passage. When you look at verse 15, and you see that those words, at this time, Peter stood up. Now, I want you to know something about Peter. Do you remember what we've talked about in the last several weeks about Peter? Think about his journey. Think about what's happened to him in these past weeks, in his time, in his life. He's denied Jesus three times. He's run out of the courtyard weeping because when the, when the rooster crowed and he and Jesus made eye contact and it all came back to him and he realized what he had done, even though he was so dogmatic about, no, I would never do that, Jesus. I'd never deny you. And he did. And he ran out weeping. Then fast forward, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, the, the text we studied in the Gospel of John about how Jesus was on the shore and they were fishing all night and they, came, they saw Jesus on the shore. Peter leapt out of the boat and swam to shore and, and they had the conversation around that fire and, and Jesus helped Peter be restored and also in his heart and mind settle this commitment the surrender that he loved Jesus enough to serve him the rest of his life. You remember Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And each time it got progressively more um, serious to Peter because the last time he said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And, and Jesus was telling him, you've got to have this down, Peter. You can't have any wavering in your heart for what's coming. See, Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was awaiting Peter the rest of his life, how he would be a, a major influence in the planting and the birth and the growth of the early church and the missionary task that God gives his people. So look here in verse 15. Peter stood up. Now, he wouldn't have done that right after he denied Jesus. Had he not been restored, he wouldn't have done that. So we, we need to recall Peter's past failure. And then we need to recall Peter's restoration and how now he's positioned by Jesus to do exactly what Jesus called him to do. There's a personal application in there for us, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. Remember Peter's failure, but then remember his restoration. And then here's what Peter says in verse 16. He says the scripture had to be fulfilled. God's word is going to come to pass. He, he's truthful. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. Not only in his character, but in his word. Everything he says, we can trust. And so that scripture, Peter says, had to be fulfilled. And what's he talking about? He, he explains it right here. He says it was of the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David. So what do, we, what do we learn from that? Did you know God is the author of the Bible? He used human authors to write it down. But don't, make no mistake, God is the author of his word. And here we just get another affirmation of that when Peter says, the scripture which the Holy Spirit foretold, by the mouth of David. And he's referencing some passages in the Psalms. Now, take note here. 
Do you know when the Psalms were written? you know when David wrote the Psalms that he is credited for? You know, you know when he wrote those? Basically about a thousand years before Jesus was born. So I want you to try to get the proper context and understand when David was inspired to write these words, it was quite some time before any of this came to pass, but that's how we know this is God's word, and God is the one who is inspiring these authors to write it down. So it says, the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Now, I want to just give you some scripture references here. If you like to take notes, you can jot these down and look at them later. Just to show the depth and the the breadth of how God's word is consistent with itself and how it's always reliable. We we studied a great commission passage that Luke penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just like Luke is the one who is used, he's the human author of the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But back in Luke 24, when Luke records the great commission passage, Do you remember what he wrote? This is Luke 24 in verses 44 to 48. He records the words of Jesus, and Jesus says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus himself said that. After his resurrection, this is in Luke 24, after the road to Emmaus, and then they come back and Jesus appears among them and he gives them the commission. He he says that specifically. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. Then he gives them the commission that says, the repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then, what does he say about Judas, because remember, Judas is the subject of this first paragraph. Back in Luke 22, verses 3 and 4, here's what we find in that passage. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. See, our enemy had something to do with this. But understand that everything that happened was all part of the bigger plan of God. None of this came as a surprise to Jesus. So Satan entered into Judas. Well, then in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, Jesus says to his disciples at the time, he says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Judas. So in John chapter 6, in verse 70, Jesus himself knows Judas is not following him. But he was chosen because he had a purpose. See, Jesus can take someone who's doing bad and use it in his plan for ultimate good. Did you know that? What what man meant for... Do you remember, you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. They threw him in a in a pit, left him for dead, then they sold him off into, into slavery. And then he became next in line to Pharaoh's house, and he ended up saving the nation from famine. Do you remember? And do you remember what he said? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So don't don't think, listen, don't think for a minute 
that any of us is so powerful and so creative and so intelligent that we can do something or dream up something and, and hatch some sort of a plan that is greater than what God has planned. That's just not the way. We, we are the created ones. He is the creator. Just don't ever forget God is indeed almighty. And that's why he is worthy of our praise and honor and worship. Then in John 17, when Jesus is praying, you recall he's praying in the garden. That's called the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 12. And Jesus says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You know what son of perdition means? It's a Hebrew idiom for one destined to perish. That's talking about Judas. So in all this, even though it's very drawn out, in this scripture, here's what the scripture says about Judas. Verse 17, he was counted among us. He received his share in the ministry. And then in verse 18, the, the per, uh, parenthetical account of what happened to him after he betrayed Jesus and was paid the 30 pieces of silver and how he ended up hanging himself and then falling and dying and that area, that field that was purchased in his name being called the field of blood. You see that in verses 17, 18, and 19. And this is a kind of a parallel. It's a It's a a harmony, if you will, from what Matthew's gospel records about the death of Judas. The point is, in all this, God's word is true, and it had to be fulfilled. That phrase that Peter uttered in verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled. The Psalms that are quoted in verse 20, Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, literally say, may their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. And then Psalm 109, let his days be few and let another take his office. Those two Psalms were fulfilled by all the events that took place surrounding the arrest and the crucifixion and the, and the, the death and burial and then resurrection of Jesus. Understand, Luke is going to great pains here to remind his readers and us, we can trust what God says in his word. Over and over and over again, that's the theme that flows through this text. We can trust what God says in his word. So the fate of Judas was sealed by his actions, his sin, his rebellion, and part of God's plan. Now then number two, the choice of Matthias in verse 21 down to verse 26. When we get to verse 21, you see this very important word, therefore. Therefore, it is necessary. Now understand, it's necessary that Judas be replaced because he was not faithful in his duties because he betrayed Jesus and then subsequently died. And so you'll see later on as other apostles are martyred for the gospel they're not necessarily replaced in the same way because they were faithful to the end of their service. They weren't unfaithful and then and sinful in their actions. So understand there's a difference in why Judas had to be replaced. So Peter says it is necessary that he be replaced. Now I want you to look very carefully at the criteria that's used to select Judas' replacement. 
You see in verse 21 and 22, they list the criteria. It has to be one of the men who has been among us from the very beginning. He goes all the way back to when John the Baptist was on earth. He says, from John's baptism all the way up to, look what it says, till when he was taken up. So that means they're looking for someone who has been with them, not one of the twelve, but a disciple as in the general sense, following along with Jesus for the entire length of time of his earthly ministry. From the time he was baptized by John all the way till the time they watched him go up into heaven. Now, that's a, you understand how that narrows the pool quite a bit. And then the other criteria is that he had to be a physical witness to the resurrection. So that's uh, the requirements to be, an, to be called an apostle. You had to literally, physically see the resurrected Jesus, be a witness to the resurrection, and then be part of the ministry of Jesus on earth from the time of baptism of John all the way to the ascension. Now, many people would say, well, what about Paul? Why, why wouldn't Paul be chosen in this? Well, Paul hadn't got saved yet. <laughs> We're in Acts chapter 1, and, and Paul is still Saul right now. So understand, there's still some evil in Saul's heart. And, and by the way, he was a physical witness on the road to Damascus to the resurrected Christ, but he was not a part of the ministry of Jesus on earth from the baptism of John until the ascension. In fact, he was, he was an opponent at that time. So understand that's why Paul wasn't considered. He wasn't there yet. So they put forward two men. Joseph Barsabbas, who is called Justice, and then Matthias. Now, here's another important point, and we're going to get to the application of all this here at the end, and hopefully that will help us understand where all this is going. Because this is a lot of information. It's kind of like a news report of what has happened and we're going to get at the end, we're going to get to several points of personal application that we can take with us and use this, this truth here uh, to help us live more for the glory of God. And so we see here that they put these two men forward, but I want you to look very carefully at verse 24. Verse 24 has a lot of truth in it for us. It says, when after they put the two men forward as the options to replace Judas, says they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. I don't want you to miss that because who chose the original 12 disciples? Jesus did. It's only fitting that Jesus is the one who is choosing this 12th apostle, the one to replace Judas. So these understand the apostles are not picking from among them, given the criteria. They're not looking out and say, okay, let's see, uh, which one of these guys look like they might could do this job? That, that's not what they're doing. They're taking the criteria that has given, been given to them by God, and they're taking, okay, we think... According to what God has told us, these two men look like they fit the description the best. But even then, they say, okay, God, here they are. Which one do we choose? This is not the will of the apostles. This is the will of Jesus Christ. We can't miss that. Because this, the word Lord is 
uh, the same word used earlier on in the book of Acts referring to Jesus. So th- th- this is not, uh, this is very specific that Jesus is the one. They're praying that Jesus Christ will show them which one to choose. So this is prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So this drawing of lots is a very common way that they would seek the direction of God to make their decisions, make sure God was showing them which way to go, and that's what they did. So Jesus chose Judas' replacement, not the apostles. And then look at verse 25. This is very telling. It says that, Show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now that's kind of a, um, a very subtle way of talking about what happened to Judas. Uh, David Peterson, who wrote a great commentary on this text, here's what he said about this particular verse. He says, literally translated, the meaning is from which Judas defected to go to his own place. Judas abandoned his place among the apostles to go to his own place. And the last expression is a euphemism for his final destiny, most likely death and the judgment of God beyond that. And without being specific about the details, Luke offers us an implied warning to all apostates. And let me just say a word about that before we finish up here. You know what an apostate is? That's someone who gives the appearance of following Christ, but is not actually surrendered to Christ. And, and let, me, let me be a little bit more specific. We say this all the time. We've talked about it many times in the past, but here's what that means. You can come to a church meeting. You can dress a certain way. You can act a certain way. You can use the right church words. And you can fool everybody in the room into believing that you're following Jesus. But guess what? That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is the fact that Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, has convicted you of your sin and you have come to Him in humble repentance and and begged for forgiveness and knowing that salvation is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Believing the truth of His death, burial, and resurrection, that He was your substitute on the cross and died in your place. If you do those things, if you surrender to Christ... That's, that's conversion. Coming to a building and gathering and singing some songs and using the, the right words doesn't make you a Christian. We need to be really, really clear about that. I can go gather in a garage, doesn't make me a truck. Just like gathering in a church building and sitting on a pew doesn't make you a Christian. Surrender to Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is about. So this is a warning. Judas was one of the twelve. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 70? Didn't I choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 26 to 31, he offers a further warning in the New Testament about falling away and, and giving this false front and claiming a salvation that you truly never have. 
Hebrews 10, 26-31 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And listen to verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, if you're apart from Jesus Christ, if you have not been convicted of your sin and repented and asked for forgiveness only in Christ, it is a terrifying thing to think about standing before Jesus at judgment time and not having surrendered to Jesus. It's only in a relationship with Jesus Christ that we stand redeemed when we get to that point. I can't stress that enough. Scripture is full of instances that show us why it is so important and necessary for us to seek relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we have looked at this text just academically so to speak and seen the fate of Judas and seen the choice of Matthias as the replacement you see there in verse 25 and 26 they drew lots in verse 26 the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the apostles so now they're back up to 12 and so that seems like it's a done deal and now all that comes next is chapter 2 and Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is going to descend and things are really going to start going but we need to finally look at some points of personal application for us. What do we do when we read this story and see how it worked out? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I've got four points of application here that I think can be helpful for us based on the truth of this text. First of all, God can and will still use you despite your failures. I think this is, a, this is a word for everybody here today, me, me most of all. God can and will still use you despite your past failures. Folks, God doesn't throw you away because you fail. Look at Peter. Peter denied Jesus publicly three times. And now who is it standing up in the midst of this gathering to talk about, hey, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. We need to follow what God says. It was Peter. See, Peter was, uh, by earthly standards, Peter might have been just put out to pasture and said, no, you can't do anything anymore. You failed, so you don't get another chance. Well, my God doesn't work that way. Peter's failure, his response was to run and weep. Jesus had other plans. He restored him and prepared him for a life of significant influence. So God can and, and will still use you after past failures. Number two, God's word is true and trustworthy. 
There's two different scriptures in the Old Testament from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. There's numerous scriptures from the New Testament, Luke 22, Luke 24, John 6, John 17. We referenced all of those in the midst of this study today. They're all pointing to the fact that Judas was going to betray Jesus as part of the bigger plan of redemption. So even though Judas had his own plan, God's plan was bigger. Because God's word is true and trustworthy. Number three, God is sovereign over all creation. You know, sometimes just this idea, we, we've, we've grown up, most of us, I, I'm assuming most of us have grown up in somewhere in the United States. Most of us have. And uh, so because of that, we have certain cultural norms that teach us things we've heard probably all our lives, stuff like this. Well, you know, you can do anything you want to do if you just work hard. You can be anything you want to be if you just try harder, work harder, do your best, right? That's not a bad thing. That's a good work ethic, right? But in the midst of that, we cannot forget God has created us. God's created this world, and he can use us to do some amazing things. But we, we enter into dangerous area when we start to believe that, that we did it all on our own. You know, it's, I, I did it. I didn't have any help. I'm a self-made man. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. Right? And that's a popular uh, attitude in, in our country. I can do it by myself. I don't need your help. Well... You may not need human help, but everybody needs God's help. Not a human being alive that doesn't need Jesus Christ. We all need God. He is sovereign over all creation. Just look at the evidence here in his word. He chose the uh, 12 original disciples knowing every detail about the plan of redemption. He chose uh, Matthias to replace Judas as an apostle and be a witness to the resurrection. He knew that Peter was going to deny him three times and hand him over to be crucified by, by Judas. God is sovereign over all creation. Number four, last one. Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. That should go without saying, but it doesn't. Because that's the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. There's no, there's no other way. Jesus is plan A and there is no plan B. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He rose as a victorious conquering king. And he calls us to faith and repentance. To turn away from our sin and to turn to him. That That's the... The meat of the gospel is Jesus calls us into a relationship with himself. And in order to do that, we have to turn from our direction and, and follow his direction. Follow him. So after all this, we have to remember this truth. Everything happens for a reason in God's economy. We see it in the life of Judas, the life of Peter, the life of the apostles, the early church. We're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes we don't know what that reason is. 
but we know that God can be trusted. We know that no human rebellion or earthly circumstance can stand in the way of God's plans and purposes for his people. Our God is sovereign, our God is good, and our God can be trusted. So the question for us today is, if he can be trusted, have you trusted him? Have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? Have you surrendered your heart and your life to him? Because that's what his call is. In every passage of scripture we study, no matter where it is in the Bible, no matter what the details are of each story, that's the ultimate question that comes from every page of scripture. Have you trusted Jesus Christ for salvation? Because if you haven't, today is the day. Jesus always gives a call to respond to him. So I pray that today you would respond, if you have not already, that you would answer the call that Jesus gives you for salvation. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 